Welcome to the Onyx Report, critical analysis-based show focusing on the experiences, histories, and perceptions of black males in American society. I'm Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Fresno State and Black Male Studies Scholar. In the show, we examine current events while engaging concepts ranging from institutionalized anti-black misandry to gynocentrism from a black masculinist perspective. Our goal, to remind people of black men's humanity. Call in after the half hour mark to the show at 310-928-7733. All right. So welcome. Um, Today we are going to have a little bit of fun, I hope. Uh, The show is titled Gynocentrism in the Media. And we're going to be looking at about four different uh, recent uh, media productions, films, and we'll be examining those. But before we get into that, I want to announce that uh, my next three shows uh, will have some guests that I'll be interviewing. Keep in mind, my shows are first the first and third Wednesdays of each month right here on innerlightradio.com. And I post the live show to YouTube uh, usually within 24 hours. Uh, Our next show, which I believe is scheduled for the 17th of this month, will feature Dr. Tommy Curry, um, newly uh, moved to Edinburgh and uh, in Scotland. So we'll be talking to him after which in August we'll be talking to um, doctors Oshan Gadsden, uh, psychologist. And after that, um, a good colleague of mine, Dr. Ronald Neal in religion. So we'll be having a little bit of fun the next three episodes. You definitely want to tune into those and catch the discussion. And I'm sure plenty of you will want to uh, call in as well. All right. So today, um, as I said, we're going to look at a few films. But as usual, we do this from a black masculinist standpoint. And I will still be covering a couple of the um, forms of anti-black misandry I talked about. I, I listed 10, but I only went through about three in the last show. Um, and I kind of want to spread that out. But for those of you who are interested in diving in, just go ahead and head to my blog um, at uh, www.newblackmasculinities.wordpress.com. And I think the last formal post is an overview of about nine forms of, of misandry. I had developed one more since I put that up. Either way, you can dive into those directly. Today, I'll mention a couple more in the course of the of, of the analysis as we look at uh, some of the more recent productions I want to talk about. The four films we're going to be talking about at various points throughout the show, and this is not in order, is the the Black Panther, Shaft, the recent Shaft uh, that just came out a few weeks ago, the Bobby DeBarge story that has been playing on, on TV One, and of course, Netflix's When They See Us. Right. Two films that are biographical in nature and two films that are theatrical and, 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 fic- and fiction based. But either way, we're going to be looking at how black men are portrayed and what some of the key elements to those um, different stories, uh, what they say about black men, what we can glean from it, how we can analyze it and whatnot. Now, in order for me to best frame how I approach this, um, I, you, you, you kind of have to understand uh, what gynocentrism is and what I have developed uh, in terms of this concept I call a synthetic black gynocracy or gynarchy. Basically, gynocentrism speaks to the idea of uh, female centeredness, right? Um, be it industry, be it ideology, whatever the question may be, if it's female centered, centered, the concept applies to gynocentrism. So we're going to be looking at in a couple of these productions uh, what role female centeredness plays and, and not even just in these productions, um, just in general and why. Right. Um, now, the synthetic black gynarchy is a whole nother affair entirely. Um, basically, the short logic is that in the black community here in the United States, we have what I call a synthetic black gynarchy gynarchy. And this is basically this basically means we have a female led society. Um, in our community. Uh, and that's and, and the reason I call it synthetic is it's not because this came out um, uh, kind of organically. It's more so because of how um, it, how policy has shaped and impacted the black community. Going back to the 30s, most particularly the 60s and the 70s and ongoing, there are key elements that have shaped the black community in a very distinct way, uh, you know, in a manner that we had not really reflected upon uh, to this degree. 
right? And so this, the synthetic black anarchy is largely um, produced by the extraction of black males from productive and competitive society, not it, 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 in, in the kind of promotion of black females. And so it's this dynamic that creates a very different kind of framework because the black community is the, is the only community in the U.S. that we know of on racial grounds where the men actually earn less than the women when you control for incarceration, right? When you control for incarceration, which is usually not something that's measured in these dynamics because incarceration is supposed to be so low, it, it shouldn't impact any of the metrics used to measure where a society is. But because of the incarceration rate in the black community, because of its extensive nature and its historically extensive nature since the 1970s, um, you know, prior to that, you had convict, convict leasing and whatnot. But in the 1970s, you really had the advent of what we now call the prison industrial complex. And the impact of that on black America has been more devastating than in any other community. And because it's been so overwhelmingly targeted at black males, the impact on the family and other key measures in the black community has really created a dynamic where just in a matter of 40 to almost 50 years now, there has been a dramatic reversal uh, of the black family in, its, in terms of its framing. Right. So really, if you go back to 1970s, 1970 itself, uh, you can actually see that, you know, you had two parent households. You had uh, males playing a very active role in the family within a matter of decades, which is is a relatively short period of time. You have over 70 percent female led households, single parent households in the black community. And that's often measured uh, by children being born to unwed mothers, meaning that they're not necessarily always single. But because they're unwed, that generally means that over time they're they're in different relationships or single altogether. The point being that the family goes through a dramatic turn in a matter of decades since the 1970s. One could argue as early as the 1980s um, that that's pretty much been set and it begins to snowball from there. So what we have is a dramatic shift. And in that shift, uh, what we've come to is a completely different community altogether. Now, there are two people I want to cite here who give us a framework to measure what this gynocracy looks like. And that's Dr. Kevin Cosby, um, president of, of Simmons College and uh, sociologist Robert Staples. And the two of them overlap in their measure of the black community. Robert Staples talks about the primary institutions in the community that are not controlled by whites. And he identifies two. He talks about the family and the church. And Dr. Kevin Cosby names a couple of more, not necessarily measuring them about whether or not they're controlled by whites, but just in terms of institutions that frame the black community. So between the two of them, we look at five different areas, schools, business, family, church, and media. Well, in, in terms of schools, about 77% of teachers are women. Um, as uh, post-2012, that, that rate is pretty high. In the black community, in terms of black teachers, I should say, of course, those numbers are different. Uh, white women constitute the majority of teachers in the country. Um, let's see. I think it's for black women. Um, I think it's where, is, where did I just put it? I think it's about 88 percent. So 80 percent of teachers are white. Um, Eight percent, I believe, are black women. About two percent are black men. So in that regard, you know, in terms of, of influence, you know, in education, that is not an area that black men are in high numbers. That is not an area we dominate despite stereotypes of black male privilege or black male patriarchy and all these kinds of terms that we hear lobbed at black men. Education is not an area where you see black men dominating. And that's important, right? It's important because when you're talking about kindergarten through 12th grade, that is where the majority of your child's time is spent, right? The majority of your child's time for, throughout the entire year is spent in the hands of an institution. And if that institution lacks black faces, let alone black males, then we can obviously see the impact or, of, of that black male absence, right? So that's an education. In business, if we actually go and look at some of the work produced after 2012 by the U.S. Census Bureau, especially the survey of business owners, what you find is that Black women are deemed the group that have been starting businesses at the highest rates. Um, and I wish I could show you a visual, some of the charts that I have. I, I usually post this stuff on stuff on Facebook, but this one I posted a while ago. But this looks at the percentages of businesses uh, that are, are 
you know, kind of racially broken down, including the number of employees. And so, you know, in terms of the chart that I'm actually actively looking at at the moment, black males um, have fewer businesses, but have a higher number of employees that they keep hired. Black women, uh, the rate ranges from 97.5 to 99% businesses that have no employees, meaning that it's primarily themselves. And only about 2% of businesses, black businesses draw profit. So what we're seeing from this is that in the area of business, um, black women actually lead not only black men, but a lot of other demographics in terms of the number of highly educated black women moving into entrepreneurship. And education is one of the, the primary aspects of it that motivates that. Now, when I talked about education a moment ago, I was talking primarily about teachers and I was looking at K through 12. But if we look at the graduation rates, black women are definitely the demographic that's said to enroll in higher education at the highest rates across race. So clearly black men are not neck and neck in, the, in that area either. And that has an impact on other things. That has an impact on even electoral you know, positions, um, you know, things of that nature. All, all the industries that require advanced education, as long as black men lag behind in that regard, and we'll, and, and we'll talk about why in a moment, it has a dramatic impact. Uh, the family. Robert Staples talks about this in general as well. And he's talking about this in 1979 when he points out that, you know, because of even at that point, the number of female led households, black men are not in a position of authority in that area either. So, so far in terms of education, business and family, you know, both of these men are pointing out that you don't find black men in positions of authority or, quote unquote, dominance. If we deal with the stereotype of male dominance, uh, they're not in either. And in the church, unless you're talking about the mosque, be it Nation of Islam or Orthodox, really we're talking about an institution that's primarily female. The Christian church, um, which has historically been the most prominent uh, 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 institution as far as religion is concerned in the black community, um, has mainly been female um, uh, dominated. You do have male pastors. A lot of that has to do with um, the interpretation of scripture, the role of men, so on and so forth. But yet and still, it's men in high-level positions, but the church itself is often run by women. And lastly, media. Now, as it stands, I didn't have a, a chance to really delve uh, into the area I wanted to uh, as far as ownership, but what, you know, in terms of like nationally accessible television channels, the only two that I have access to are TV One and BET. And both of those have a strong bent toward uh, catering to a female demographic. Now, across all of these industries and more, one of the reasons that there is such a major shift toward catering to women has to do with the 1970s. Uh, the second wave feminist era of women across race in the U.S. Uh, really needed to go into the workplace because the dollar bill, the value of the dollar bill flattened out. And so families, even white families who have much more wealth than black families, had to move to a two-parent, two-income dynamic to survive. Right? So mu much of that was, was motivated by necessity. Yet and still, the impact of that is incredibly important. It doubled the workforce almost overnight in the 1970s. And what it also did as far as industry was create a whole new pool of industry, women, and really even children by extension. There's a whole you know, documentary I showed in my class on children having access to money and what that's done to the marketing industry. But the same can be said of women. And since then, we've seen a snowball of, in, of, of media that has targeted women in a very particular way. And you can see it in television commercials and shows and definitely in movies. And the tropes have become very predictable um, and, and really grounded in female superiority. Women and girls are generally smarter than men and boys in these productions. They're, they're physically stronger. They're more capable. They're more confident. Um, and usually the boys and the men have become the laughing stock. They've become the butt of the joke, whereas the women are the ones that come in and handle everything. And it's this dynamic that has not only become extremely predictable, but problematic. As I've told you before, I have a 13-year-old son. About a week ago was the first time he actually mentioned to me that he saw a television show, an animated show, where a male beat a female at anything. So you have a whole generation of youth who are growing up only seeing girls and women as capable and men as somewhat of a joke, somewhat, uh, you know, somewhat something to dismiss and laugh at. And there are countless commercials you can point to that kind of bring this out. Even today, I was uh, sifting through channels and, and just kind of blown away at how many shows, even within a matter of minutes, 
re you know kind of reinstitute the same idea of female superiority um over and over and over again in all kinds of different contexts um and so those are some of the things that i think play a role now the four films that we're going to be talking about today um not as much you know and that's probably because i'm the one choosing them but on average most of the time if i go to a movie and just pick something arbitrarily or flick or just turn on the television the majority of the time i would say the target audience are not males and because of that i think the idea in many in, in many areas of industry has been males are going to uh, you know they're going to they're not really an audience we want to target they're going to show or not show it's really the women we want to see and because of that it's changed the dynamic altogether of how men and women are represented in film. And this is this is really across race. But in the black community, it's usually built upon further stereotypes of black male inferiority. And those stereotypes play out and tend to be used in a way that supports this notion. All right. So um, just I, I just kind of wanted to lay the groundwork for how I'm approaching this. Uh, and, and how I kind of look at film and media in general uh, to kind of frame out this dynamic. Now, I, as I said, the two, the four films we're looking at, two of which are uh, biographical, two of which are fictional. I want to start uh, with the two biographical pieces, and I think I'll start with the Central Park Five. Uh, all of the films I chose were directed by black men, except for, for When They See Us, and that is um, directed by Ava DuVernay, and she did a, a bang up job, um, even in terms of the casting. Um, Ava has been one of the, the, the directors that has not been as traditionally hostile to the image of black males as we've seen in other areas with other people in other in other industries. But um, the film itself is very powerful. Uh, if you do get a chance to see it, um, be prepared uh, the four episode uh, uh, series is, is is daunting to say the least. And if it's daunting to watch, you can only imagine how, how much more daunting it was to experience for the men involved. Uh, Kevin Richardson, Richardson, Antron McRae, Yusef Salam and Corey Wise. Uh, the final episode is pretty much dedicated to Corey because Corey spent the uh, longest time in prison. And this is a young man that only went uh, to the police department to support his friend and ended up spending more time in prison than anyone else accused. But if you haven't heard of it, it's on Netflix. It's called When They See Us. And it's an excellent uh, kind of overview of what happened to the young men who were, oh, I'm sorry, I left out Raymond Santana. The the five young men, a black and Latino, who were uh, arrested on uh, really trumped up charges and sentenced to years in prison despite a lack of evidence. Uh, and really, it, it, what's sad to say is they were released mainly because uh, of a good Samaritan in the form of a murderer who, from what it seems, uh, found religion, found God, and came forward and acknowledged his wrongdoing. The sad part of that dynamic is I would argue that the majority of black men who have been falsely incarcerated um, are not going to have someone come forward and claim ownership of the crime. So what you see with, when they see us is a story that's devastating to watch. It will be jarring to you emotionally if you have a soul. Um, and especially if you're a black male or you're a parent of one or family member of one and you know how easily this can happen. There's not a day when I leave my home and I'm not aware of what can happen. And I and I try to prepare for that in regard to my child, to my household, because I never know when I'm not going to be coming back for things that have nothing to do with what I'm doing. So that's what made watching when they see us so difficult for me and for scores of other black men, especially because we all know what little it would take for this to happen to any of us. Um, you know, and because of that, that makes these things very difficult to watch. So, you know, um, it's a powerful film. Uh, each, you know, each, each man's experience is kind of explored, uh, and you get to see a little bit about their jail time and whatnot. But the first one, I would say, is, is aptly uh, listed, you know, because it starts with them as young men. It shows what happens and it shows how they were uh, brought into the police department and coerced by police officers. Now, what's interesting to watch here is that this is mostly um, initiated by um a white, uh, I what her position is. What's her name? Linda Fairstein, I think it was. Um, hold on, so let me see if I can pull her up. Um, 
but it was you know kind of initiated by this um this white woman who was hired to kind of lead off the a newly developed um, aspect of the police department that focused on rape, focused on sexual violation. And in her position, she was seeking to really make her presence felt, uh, make a splash. And it didn't really matter who was responsible in that regard. And so what she ended up doing, yeah, uh, the name is Linda Fairstein. Uh, what she ended up doing is con- is really not only, you know, motivating the police department to, coerce and threaten these young boys and and eventually prosecuting them. But she also, you know, coaxed many of the white male police officers with an idea of chivalry, right? So basically what she did was she appealed to their whiteness and made the argument, really, and she kept doing it. And Ava DuVernay kind of had her character doing that in the film, Um, you know, kind of... constantly pointing to how devastated and violated this white woman is or was who was actually raped in the park and whatnot. And by doing so, she was kind of stoking the fires of many of these white male police officers to go out there and vehemently grab whoever they can. Now, what that points out to us is that the the relationship between patriarchy, white patriarchy, and really white feminism in that regard. And you really need to look into Dr. Tommy Curry's book, The Man Not to Explore, on a granular level what he's talking about in terms of that relationship. But, in, you know, just summarizing, you know, what she does is she really, that show, shows us the relationship between the two. By her appeals for female victimization, she's actually stoking the fire of white patriarchs who are going out there to arrest black and brown men, even boys, uh, to protect the very idea of white femininity, right? And that's kind of what we see in when, in when they see us, her going to all lengths to, to motivate these white male cops to go out and arrest by any means necessary, uh, forgive the term, um, not invoking Malcolm in that sense, to you know wrongly persecute men on the basis of uh, their assumed guilt. And that, of course, is rooted in their blackness and their brownness. Right. And so her doing this is one way of kind of framing that. And there's an interesting conversation that takes place the first night she has the, the, the young boys there. And it's it, it's between uh, the, uh, the Fairstein herself and one of the mothers. And one of the mothers is played by Angelou Ellis. And in that discussion, Angelou Ellis, by the way, was brilliant, uh, not only in this film, but she was also brilliant in the film on uh, Nat Turner, Birth of a Nation and a number of others, in fact. But one of the things there's there's this brief exchange where when Anjanu, who's playing Sharon Salam, when she comes to get her son Yusef, um, and she finds out that he's about to sign something, he's you know he's about to be completely coerced, and of course she steps in and rescues her son. But there's a moment where she looks at the two white male police officers that have been presumably yelling and, and threatening her son, and she turns and she looks at Fairstein and she says, "How could you do this? This is a young boy." And in that moment, one of the things that first came to mind for me was this was an appeal from one woman to another on the basis of, you know, almost a kind of assumed femininity, that that there's some holistic kind of womanhood that is inherently pure and inherently good. And that goes back to what I said earlier about the, you know, presumed superiority of women. One of the elements is not only that they're they're better at everything, but mo- but they're also inherently pure and inherently inherently good. Whereas men are inherently bad and inherently problematic. And so, you know, in that moment in the scene between Salam and Fairstein, you see this almost this kind of appeal to Fairstein's womanhood. Like, how can you violate these young boys? And, and you know, at the same time, we're looking at this and, you know, it's a very clear history of uh, people like Fairstein not seeing these boys as human to begin with. And even if they're if they're clearly innocent, it doesn't matter. Somebody has to take the fall for this in protection of the very idea of white womanhood. Okay. Um, very quickly, and I know I'm just I'm skimming the surface of this. So you know, for those who want to call in, we can definitely go a little deeper. I want to talk very briefly about the Bobby DeBar story. Very important story. If you get a chance to see it on TV One, if you have not, I highly recommend it. Um, it gives you a kind of an inside look at the, the the Barge family. This is directed by Russ Parr, written by Norman Vance Jr., um, and it covers the you know really the family starting with Bobby. And there's not you know starting with Bobby was actually quite brilliant and focusing on him because you know most of us are more familiar with L. DeBarge. Um, Bobby came out first, a member of Switch. 
Uh, so there's a little bit of a generational shift between the two that might impact who knows about Bobby and who knows about L. But it's still a very interesting film, and it kind of shows you what happened. The DeBarges are almost like the anti-Jacksons. They have an alternative experience to the Jackson family. And there are some connections between the two where a couple of the DeBarges were actually dating and, and um, um, you know, uh, engaged to um, some of the Jackson women. So there are def- definitely some linkages. But whereas the Jacksons are notably um, considered to be abused by a black male patriarch, the DeBarges are, ab- are abused by a white male patriarch, uh, so to speak. And so because of that, the story kind of goes in a different direction because this particular father um, abused his kids dramatically, you know, um, to a great degree, in fact. Um, and I should I should have said spoilers, but if you don't get that by now, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, you might not want to listen to this if you don't want any spoilers. I'm not going to spoil everything, but, you know, there are just some overall dimensions that I want to pay attention to that hopefully you'll remember when you go back and watch it if you haven't seen it yet. But, um, you know, the, one of the hallmarks of the, DeVar- the Barge family is that you had a black matriarch uh, or black uh, mother figure who marries a white man who is abusive, not only to her, but to the kids. And not only physically abusive in terms of violence, but also sexually abusive. Um, so it, they touch on a little bit of it. They don't give us a great degree of detail. They kind of skim along the surface. But TV One also has a show called uh, Unsung, where they go into more depth on the DeBarges in regard to their father. And apparently the father had sexually violated both Bobby and the daughter, Bunny DeBarge. And so you can kind of see the impact of that on their lives, the the brokenness, the drug use. Now, that's that goes with Hollywood. That goes with music to anyway. But. I think when you when you put the put their history in context, their family history, it's hard not to suggest that there's not a linkage between, you know, the kind of violence that they experienced and their choice to, you know, engage in drugs from the vantage point that they do. Um, so it's I, I think it's an important piece to watch in that sense. Uh, and there's some racial dimensions of it, you know, to it as well. One of the terms, one of the forms of anti-black misandry I was talking about last week, I think actually plays out here in regard to, you know, one scene where you see uh, the father taking Bobby uh, DeBarge upstairs and, and not only physically beating him, but presumably sexually, you know, in, you know, uh, penetrating him, sexually violating him. Uh, they, of course, don't show that, but there's a there's a, a a scene later in the film where Bobby confronts his mother for not doing enough to protect him from that. Um, and so in that scene, I would invoke a concept I call ABM homoeroticism, anti-black uh, misandry, homoeroticism. And what homoeroticism in this context speaks to is the literal and figurative consumption of the black male body, the eating of the black male cannibalism sustained by the homoerotic sexual urge of racism. Uh, eroticism and white men's domination of black male bodies uh, and its very uh, nature being sexualized suggests a transfer of sexual power as hypermasculine black men are seen as conquest quest by uh, by white men as big game to be hunted. Now, this is something that we can see in various forms of police brutality. We can also see it in terms of representing black men as uh, especially strong, dominant, uh, physically capable black men uh, as feminine. Um, and this is something that that I think is also addressed, addressed to some extent in, in Shaft film. We'll get to that in a moment. But whether you're talking about Tyler Perry, whether you're talking about Wesley Snipes, Terry Crews, Martin Lawrence, um, Chris Tucker, I mean, The Rock, we can go. Um, you know, we've seen a number of these actors over the years be placed in dresses. And it's always interesting because it's not just the average black male. It's one of the most it's the most physically demanding, um, physically uh, uh, demonstrative, physically imposing black men that are put in dresses. Um, and we see that dynamic play out where they are feminized in very distinct ways. And to call it out, you know, for some people is considered you know, a, a demonstration of, of misogyny or demonstration, not misogyny, but a demonstration of some form of sexism. But that's not true. To point out that particularly strong, uh, able-bodied, heterosexual black men seem to be required in Hollywood to be feminized, that needs study. 
and it needs to be discussed openly and dealt with. But in the context of the DeBarge story, the Bobby DeBarge story, Bobby is the most outspoken child in the family. He's He confronts his father, at least in terms of how the film portrays him. He's confrontational in that sense. He even protects his siblings and tries to take the brunt of the, the abuse. And so it's it's in that sense, you can kind of see how the father's dominance, domination over Bobby, even sexually, is related to this notion of ABM homoeroticism. It's not just that he's beat up and dominated. It's that he's sexually dominated as well. And that's in, in some sense considered a sort of transfer of power. So, again, you can talk about this in terms of police brutality. You can even talk about this in terms of the treatment of a professional athletes, you know, where you have these old out of shape men who are dominating on a day-to-day basis, very, you know, very in shape, young, relatively speaking, uh, muscular black men. And so that dominance can be seen even in that context. Um, so there's an important moment there. Now, I also want to point to a paper that came out last, I think, summer before, well, this is, this is summer. So last summer, that I think is important. This too is by Dr. Tommy Curry. It's called She Touched Me. And the paper deals with interviews of black men who've been sexually violated, usually in their youth. And what it's what it shows is that young black males uh, tend to have some of the earliest um, sexual debuts. In other words, they, they end up having their first sexual experiences at much younger ages, even younger than black women, um, considerably younger. In fact, in, somewhere between 12 and, and 14 um, I would have pulled out the paper, but I I didn't I wasn't planning to jump into that, especially since we'll have Dr. Curry on my next show uh, and we can go into more depth with it. But one of the things that we you can kind of get from the paper is the impact of that kind of sexual trauma on um, on black males and even how they define pleasure, sexual pleasure, even for the rest of their lives, whether they're sexually violated by a man or a woman uh, it, 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 in some in one sense, it really doesn't matter. When violated at a young age, what tends to happen for boys is the same thing that happens for girls. There's trauma, but we just don't generally regard that as trauma. And most of the time for men and women, I hear that if you got some early, you know, if you got it at a young age, especially from a beautiful woman, then you lucked out. Right. Um, But in actuality, the trauma is the trauma, whether it's a beautiful teacher or whether it's a, a father, the trauma is the trauma. And it has an impact that can be incredibly daunting for the victim for the rest of their lives, especially if they don't get therapy, they don't get counseling. Um, They tend to have the very way of the very way they receive and give pleasure tends to remain tied to that initial trauma, even if it doesn't seem so, even if it seems enjoyable and pleasant, even if it seems like there's nothing wrong. Often the very definition of pleasure for that person is still tied to the, the initial act of trauma. And so with Bobby, it can be argued that one way that manifests is, you know, he he ends up and they don't really deal with it in depth in the film. But if you watch the unsung, you know, short documentary, the hour long documentary on the DeBarges, it kind of show that, you know, he developed really uh, a homosexuality that many argued was very tied to his experience with his father. So kind of despite the assumption that everybody who's gay is born such, you know, there is plenty of research, plenty of documentation and plenty of argument that sexuality can be informed and shaped by trauma. Um, in many different ways. So it isn't, I'm not at all arguing that all gay people are, you know, products of trauma, but I am saying in in regard to Bobby, um, the argument made by some of even his family members was that that had a tremendous impact on his own perception of his own sexuality, right? And so that becomes an interesting part uh, to look at if you watch the Bobby DeBarge story and Unsung and kind of get the overall picture on what the DeBarges experienced, how it impacted them, and how it even impacted their their kids later in life. I mean, many of them had a tragic end to their careers. Uh, many of them, uh, you know, a number of them went to jail, dealt with drug abuse, you know, things of that nature. Even Bunny, um, you know, became an addict, you know, so it, it, the trauma of their early experience was was so impactful, it, it scarred them really for the rest of their lives. In that sense, and Bobby, of course, uh, going to prison um, for trafficking drugs and then spending years in there and then coming out and finding out he was HIV positive and dying of AIDS. All of these things were very much tied to some of the experiences uh, black males experience, you know, have that aren't discussed in detail. Um, so those kind of things need to be kind of drawn out when we analyze and talk about 
a lot of this stuff. We need to be able to pull this out more dramatically. Um, so let me shift a little bit. Um, I can do several hours on Black Panther. I'm not going to. I will say, however, again, if you go to my blog, um, you'll actually see I did write an extensive piece on Black Panther. I think it's important to look at, um, mainly because there are some ideas, some images there that um, much of the time we don't think about. You know, of course, this is one of the big Marvel um, MCU blockbusters. Uh, many of us have heard about it. Um, and, and of course, if you haven't heard about it, you, you're probably living in a cave somewhere. Um, but the Black Panther film, for those of us who have been uh, comic heads, I've been collecting comics for 40 years, and it's actually been a part of my research um, at different points, depending on the project played an important role um, in uh, the comic played an important role in framing the character uh, for the large part, but the film makes a dramatic series of turns. So, you know, I kind of want to look at some of that and, and kind of go into why it's important in this discussion. This is, this is the point in the discussion where we can bring back in the concept of female superiority. Uh, Black Panther, popular character, um, going back to the 1960s, considered the first major black hero. Basically, that just means um, he was a, a white-created hero at a popular comic book um, company, right, Marvel Comics. Um, this is huge because, really, um, prior to that, you only had, um, what would you call it? You only had uh, the sidekicks for the most part, at different points in time. But he was a feature character coming out in 1966, created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. So two white men, um, you know, uh, Jewish for that matter, creating a black character to tap into a black audience while trying to address issues of multiculturalism and diversity. And so for those of us who've been collecting comics for about 40 years, Black Panther was incredibly important. And and I would argue I I never thought that I would see a live action film, let alone one that was given the full Hollywood treatment. Uh, I thought it would have been a low budget affair, much like what probably would have happened if um, Wesley Snipes did get to play the character um, like he was trying to in the 90s. That didn't work out. He ended up actually doing Blade instead. I have no complaints. I thought Blade, he did an excellent job with that, but I don't think they were going to give him the kind of budget to do the Black Panther the way it needed to be done in terms of scope and scale. Nevertheless, um, the character is incredibly important. The Panther himself, in many ways, to me, represents a symbolic battle of Black men in the comic book industry. And what I mean by that is, even though the character was created by two white men in Mar at Marvel Comics, it was black men, especially in the 1990s, that really began to shape the Panther in different ways. From Reginald Hudlin to, um, oh goodness, how's the, the brother's name escaping me at the moment? Um, Christopher Priest. These black men actually began to shift the focus of the Panther and, and kind of make it more relevant, especially to an African-American audience. Um, they really embellished on what Wakanda was about. They really built on vibranium, what it could mean. The Dora Milaje, they created that, as a matter of fact. Um, the relationship with Storm of the X-Men, all of these features played out in a very particular way. And they were really part of an African-American imagination about what it would be like to actually have an African country um, that invested in, you know, uh, in, in technology and intellectual superiority in a way that we've not seen in the modern era, especially in terms of what's important. In other words, you know, we've not yet seen a film that get, that got the Hollywood treatment on ancient Africa, ancient from ancient Egypt to any country south of Egypt. We, we've not or west of Egypt, for that matter. We've not seen any kind of Hollywood treatment. And the reason for that is because this is mainly um, uh, this is. Um, programming right media is programming and as much as, as we think it's about entertaining it's really about indoctrinating people with very key ideas and so my focus in analyzing media is to try and contextualize the ideas how they're being used and what they mean so with black panther you have a switch that's important the, uh, the black panther character was known for being 
yes, a superhero, a guardian of his nation, and also a king, right? And in that, he was known for being exceptionally brilliant. He was one of the top 10 most brilliant people on the planet in regard to Marvel Comics. He was an inventor. He was a creator. He was a master, master tactician, strategist, martial artist. And there are some key comic book series with the Panther that are just undeniably brilliant in terms of uh, the way they're written. The only one I'll mention for right now is when the scrolls try to invade Wakanda. If you've not ever read anything, go read that and watch how that kind of goes out. But anyway, my point in bringing this up is that the Panther was uh, is physically imposing, you know, because of the heart shaped herb. He has the, you know, really the physical prowess of somebody that's just just a little bit beyond Captain America. But what made Panther exceptional was his mind, was his brilliance uh, in the comics as far as that was concerned. Well, in the film, there's a dramatic shift. Um, there's a shift that focuses on uh, the Dora Milaje, the female guard to the king, as well as Shuri, uh, T'Challa's younger sister, the Black Panther's younger sister. In the film, Shuri becomes the embodiment of the Panther's genius, and he less so. And the Dora Milaje kind of become somewhat of a, an army force, which is interesting because in the comics they were more of a, you know, like a the secret service to the, you know, the president kind of thing. But in the in the movie they kind of become some kind of armed force unto themselves. It's a little different. But you can tell here that the director Ryan Coogler again is catering to a female audience and trying to find ways to bring them to the theater to see the film. And I have no problem with that. I get that. But what I do have a problem with that is, with with is the changing of the character for that, right? And so that would be akin to, and, and people have heard me say this online, it would be almost like giving Superman's greatest power, whether it be flight or super strength, and giving it to Lois. That would be great if you really want to make Lois a center figure, but what does it actually do to Superman? And is it lazy writing that you actually can't go out your way to find characteristics to this character that don't have to be pulled from the main one. So again, for those of us who've been waiting, you know, for 40 years of comic collecting to finally see Panther on the screen, I have still not yet seen the Panther I've been reading all these years. I have not seen the, the brilliant capability, um, which was always my favorite superpower, but I would argue his, his, his most impactful superpower on the main screen. Instead, it's kind of given to Shuri, and, you know, in subsequent films, she kind of laughs at, you know, the resident geniuses, be it Tony Stark or, you know, the, you know uh, Bruce Banner. You know, she kind of, you know, kind of suns them because they're not as, as, as intellectual. They're not as intelligent as she. But this shift in the Panther series is highly problematic in, my, in, in that regard because, again, so many black boys have yet to actually get a chance to actually see the Panther, Right. And and when, and another element to this that I think is important, uh, this is an article you can find on uh, the CNBC website about a $250,000 college scholarship uh, that the cast of the Black Panther announced. And it was made uh, in, you know, kind of with the backing of the Black Panther in terms of the narrative. And it was given out. But again, this was something that was presented during the 2018 Women in Entertainment Gala. And the focus ended up being on black girls and black women. But when you look at the educational uh, impact of uh, the kind of policies that have prevented black boys from excelling, not only would this scholarship have been useful in terms of targeting black boys, so too would have been the image of an, an highly intellectual panther who's both capable and brilliant. That would have been inspiring, too, since I would argue the black comic book makers like Christopher Fr Priest and Hudlin have been fighting to do with the Panther is maintain a sense of decorum, maintain a sense of, of, of capability that's designed to inspire boys. The comic book industry was male centered for years and somehow that became a negative thing, but nobody is actually asking whether or not we're going to, you know, democratize female, you know, spaces. But for some reason, male spaces have become negative just because they're male spaces. So the comic book industry is not only looking to broaden its audience in terms of capitalism, we understand that, but the argument that this is kind of being based on is a feminist argument that male spaces are inherently problematic and female spaces don't really need to be discussed. But the adverse impact of that philosophy on black kids, black boys in particular, is that an opportunity like the Black Panther, both in film and both in, and, and as well in terms of scholarships and different types of uh, forms of activism rooted around helping 
black kids in regard to education are adversely impacted, I would argue. Adversely impacted because what black boys generally experience in education is what I call, what I relate to what I call the promotion demotion thesis. And basically what that refers to is an idea that black boys are, um, hold on, let me see where I put it because I know I had it right here. Black boys are basically not able to compete for a variety of reasons. For the most part, in, you know, capable, outspoken black boys are either sent to special ed not because of their intellectual capability, but because of their behavior. And again, they're being taught by white women, generally women who are not from their community, do not know how to read their social cues and understand their behavior. They are dismissed based mostly on behavior to special ed, which routes them off of a college track. Or if they have the capability physically, they might have the potential to stay in athletic programs. Black boys who are intelligent and capable are often not encouraged within the institution. So again, they tend to be split between special ed and education. The boys that tend to get through are often boys that can code switch. In other words, boys who are relatively quiet, who can who can basically you know engage um, a style of learning that that works, especially for white female teachers. Um, and if those boys can act that out, they can to some extent move ahead. But what's interpreted as threatening in regard to black boys is a whole nother matter. And white women in their discomfort can have a tremendous impact on the educational um, you know, potential of young black boys. And so I'm arguing that in regard to what I call the promotion demotion thesis, uh, which proposes that the access black women have had to state federal resources in regard to public aid, education, voting, white collar jobs and the consequent middle class lifestyles that they have resulting from education and managerial labor was strategically connected to the underdevelopment of black males experiencing limited state resources, incarceration, limited voting rights, and working class lifestyles. In fact, prison not only, you know, kind of um, prevents them from being, black males from being able to vote and participate in society along those grounds, it also prevents them in many cases from getting uh, this financial aid to go to college. So again, all of these things kind of work in tandem to demote black males and promote black females. Whether poor, middle, or upper middle class, black females have options that boys and men often don't. Whether it's, you know, because due to the man in the house rule, you have denied access to certain types of, of welfare and food aid for decades, uh, you, know, edu you know, access to, to the funding in terms of college, all of these kinds of things begin to shape how people perceive and interpret black males in education as well as in the social sector. And so because of this split between black men and women's experiences, I make the argument that most people don't realize, and I would especially say in terms of black women, how different black men and women's lives are, how different black boys and girls' lives are. And I've even seen this with mothers of sons, but an underestimation of how different our realities actually are. And because we frame a great deal on in in terms of race, we don't often pay attention to that. Um, so going back to the Panther, an opportunity missed um, to support black boys because of the demonization of males in popular culture and the extent to which that further impacts black boys in terms of the image of the Panther, you know, over, you know, versus Shuri. And, you know, what kind of subsequent you know, opportunities can, came out of the film that, again, sidestepped the boys that were usually kind of targeted by this industry at one point in time, the comic book industry. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention about Black Panther is it was very reminiscent of another film that came out in the early 70s. Uh, and this was actually a film that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, predated Shaft and was a revolutionary film in that sense. It was called The Spook Who Sat by the Door. Um, and it came out in 1973, directed by Ivan Dixon, starring Lawrence Cook as Dan Freeman. Now, if you watch this film, for those of you who've never seen it, um, the film would be as if I told you it was about Killmonger. And instead of Panther being the hero, the hero, hero would have been Killmonger. Now, obviously, we're not talking about vibranium and things of that nature. But Dan Freeman in this film plays an ex-gang member who actually decides to go in and become an FBI agent when the opportunity arises. And after serving in the FBI for a number of years, goes back into the Chicago ghetto and trains a whole generation of gang members to be revolutionaries and starts really, you know, a revolution of that sort. Um, 
he is, in many instances, the positive aspect to Killmonger. So it's telling that decades later, you can actually have a Killmonger-like character with, um, um, oh my goodness, I'm blanking on this brother's name. I'm sitting with Michael B. Jordan playing Eric Killmonger, being presented as the the enemy, and the Panther actually working with the CIA to quelch this potential global black revolution. Now, you don't have to like that approach to it. You don't have to agree to it. But I, what I want you to see the parallel between in regard to Spook Who Sat by the Door and the Black Panther is the shift in politics, right? The film Spook got on the screen really due to some misdirection. I mean, they basically got distribution and got in the film by basically presenting the idea that this was just another black action film. And by the time the promoter, the distribution companies actually saw what the film was about, I think it was only in theater for a, a couple of weeks. And every copy of it was 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 said to be, you know, assumed. Matter of fact, Ivan Dixon, if I'm not mistaken, uh, had to mislabel the the one of the reels of the film so that it wouldn't be destroyed only for it to, you know, in order for uh, the initial writer of the film. Um, oh, my goodness. I just had it on my screen. Um brother passed away not too many years ago, in fact. But um, the writer of the book, Sam Greenlee, excuse me, uh, who wrote the book a couple years prior to that, they actually were able to get hold of the film and start distributing it on DVD some years ago, obviously before Greenlee passed. Uh, but you can find some interviews with him, Greenlee, on YouTube that'll be quite, quite eye-opening. Watch the film if you get a chance. Incredibly powerful. But it kind of gives us the reverse of the Panther, where African-Americans are not presented, African-Americans in particular, who want so, to be liberated from an ongoing oppression going back to slavery. You know, it, here you have in, in Spook uh, an opportunity to see that kind of character come out of the African-American experience as a hero. Now, there's no connection to Africa in Spook, but he is looking for some form of vibranium, which in that context would be revolution uh, for Dan Freeman, the character in Spook. Whereas in the Black Panther, um, vibranium is something that has to be kept away from Killmonger. And he's just kind of limited as this one dimensional villain who wants to kill everybody in the world. And, that, and it's kind of exaggerated in that way, I think, to kind of avoid some of the politics. Um, and lastly, I would point to Shaft now. As I understand it, tonight after 10 is the very last showing of Shaft in Fresno. Um, that's not saying much. Fresno doesn't tend to hold black films very long anyway. Uh, you can see some of my reviews of Birth of a Nation and um, 12 Years a Slave. Those, those films lasted only a couple of weeks in Fresno. Um, and I even take pictures of how empty the theater is, and I post them on my social media. But in terms of Shaft, I just kind of want to say that this is this was actually an interesting film that kind of goes against what you might expect while affirming what you expect at the same time. It is in really in certain ways a celebration of black masculinity, black manhood, um, tongue in cheek at moments, making fun of itself at others and also making fun of the stereotypical stereotypical presentation of of black manhood as well. And so here you have three generations of shafts coming together in this film. Um, and, and this is important. Uh, my father and my son and I all went to see it in celebration of that three different generation kind of narrative. But you have um, Jesse T. Usher playing the youngest shaft. You have Samuel Jackson playing the middle-aged shaft and rich, of course, the original Richard Roundtree coming back. And in this celebration of manhood, you actually get to see some of the narratives of the black family played out. Um, the director, Tim Story, and I heard John Singleton was instrumental before he passed, but I'm not quite sure about that, made a film that was both comedy, action, well, I should say not both, comedy, action, and drama. And so one of the things you kind of find out is that Shaft has his child taken from him by the mother because his lifestyle is threatening. Um, but what you also get to see is the impact on fathers of having their children removed from their presence. And then having their name villainized in the eyes of their children and what that does. And you can actually see it on the characters' faces, what that does to each one, particularly Samuel Jackson's shaft. And so there's an interesting kind of ode to black men that we often don't get to see in popular media where you, 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 you get to see how black men are impacted 
by their absence in the family, because sometimes that absence is not a product. Many times that absence is not a product of of what stereotypes suggest it is, laziness, disinterest. I mean, I again, I said this in, in the last show. I sat in my graduate classes and had professors without any kind of documentation stand in front of the class and just say black men didn't support family, they didn't believe in family, didn't care about family, and, and you know, and no documentation presented whatsoever. Um, I think in many ways that's become commonplace in many people's imagination about black men. But the film actually gives you a little glimpse into the inner workings of, of many black men who are dramatically impacted by that forced absence and what that does to them. Uh, it's also kind of a celebration of heterosexual masculinity, something that is highly problematized in many other circles. Uh, but in this film, they kind of play on that. And one of the things you walk away with is an understanding that Shaft, in many ways, who's known since the very first film in the 70s to be the ladies' man, that part of the reason that he is, the part of the reason that he celebrates, you know, his masculinity and has all of these dynamics with all kinds of different women, in this film, it's kind of presented as a protection to the family. He can't have lasting relationships because the women in his life will be threatened. So it kind of actually gives you an explanation of Shaft in a particular way that we've never seen. So as in prior films, Shaft is just kind of celebrated as the ladies' man, but in this one, you actually get to see why. And it's not necessarily just because of his libido. It's actually because it's the only kind of, of affection he can endure and experience without it being a threat to those that he loves. And so it's an interesting twist, and I'll give Tim's story uh, credit on that. I'll definitely give Samuel Jackson credit uh, very unbowed, outspoken black men uh, in this film, and especially with Samuel. Uh, and I think it's worth the watch, worth the support just because of that. Um, but it also counters uh, what I was talking about earlier in terms of anti-black um, uh, misandry. I was talking about ABM homophilia. And basically what that refers to is the representation of stereotypically hyper-masculine hyper black men in effeminate, um, you know, hyper-feminine uh, forms of representation. So again, very physically dominant black men represented as female, represented as effeminate, really more as female. Um, that trope in and of itself is really kind of challenged in Shaft, where it is an unapologetic celebration of strong black manhood and a somewhat under the table explanation for what other films and other media projects do not allow black men to say. That is why some of the things that have happened have taken place, why black men are in the position they are, how they actually feel about it and the kind of relationships that developed. And, and one of the things we actually end up seeing is a young man come into his manhood because of his association with his father and his grandfather, something that we often see denied in everyday uh, social culture. Right. I talked a, a couple of shows ago about Father's Day. And the impact of, of Father's Day being seen as something that men need to be removed from and women need to be celebrated for because of the high number of single parent families in the black community. But the, the film actually celebrates fathers by showing what the impact of a father's presence can be for black males. Right. And so I think, you know, without going into any more detail, I hope you get a chance to support it. Check it out. I'm not at all arguing that it is on par with an academic paper or anything of that nature, but it just gives us an opportunity to kind of explore a little bit about uh, the representation of black men and the possible reasons behind some of the things that have become stereotyped. Anyway, um, I know I rushed through a number of those. We didn't get any calls this time that I can see, but um, hopefully we'll be able to kind of fix that in the next few shows and kind of get more interaction and kind of delve into it from there. But I want to welcome you. Uh, I want to thank you for having listened. Um, and I look forward to some future dialogue with you. This is the Onyx Report with Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. Um, thank you for coming in. Thank you.